Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. We'll get started. If you're new to class, um, welcome to you. We we meet every Monday. We've been meeting every Monday for many years, decades. I've been teaching this uh, weekly class, and um, I teach for a few reasons. Um, one is to help encourage and support people in their process of awakening, of healing, of recovering. And another is to um, give opportunities for people to uh, develop community, what we call Sangha, to take refuge in Sangha, to be part of a community, to meet and connect with like-minded people. Uh, Of course, that's not as easy uh, to do through the uh, online platform of Zoom as it is when we're actually in the room together and you get to connect and meet people. Often in the uh, beginning of class, when we're in the room together, I ask people to take a couple minutes and introduce themselves to some of the people in the room that they don't know yet. And... um, you know, it's not, not quite so easy when there's a whole bunch of people online in little computer boxes to introduce yourselves. But uh, if you put your uh, uh, view on, um, what's it called? It's called uh, gallery. If you, if you put it on gallery, then you can kind of see everybody and see that there's, you know, I don't know, three pages or so of people and... Um, know that you're part of a large community, a whole bunch of people who are gathering to meditate and listen to the Dharma. So we'll start with a sitting meditation and I'll offer some meditation instructions. And um, so find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed, meditative posture. And When you're ready, allow your eyes to be gently closed. Release any tension that you can release, softening the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Releasing tension in the neck and shoulders. And begin to tune into the sensations that the breath creates, the rising and falling of the belly. And as you exhale, see if you can soften. Is there tension, resistance, holding in the belly? See if you can soften your belly. With each exhale, 
letting go of the past, letting go of the future. More and more arriving in the present. And internally, set the intention to meet your own mind, your own body, the experience in meditation this next 30 minutes or so with kindness. The intention, the aspiration to be friendly, to be kind, to be accepting of your own emotions and thoughts, sensations. Establishing an inner attitude of acceptance and kindness. of friendliness and mercy. bringing mindfulness to the sensations of the breath with an attitude of friendliness, with a soft belly. The awareness of the other sense doors of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, and thinking, present, but in the background. We give the body sensations of breathing, the foreground of our attention, the priority. Everything else recedes. We bring our full present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness to the breath.
Breathing in one nose, I breathe in, whether it's deep or shallow. No need to control the breath, but you just receive it, to feel it, to know it. Breathing out one nose, I breathe out. And when the attention is pulled away from the focus on the breath, back into thinking, just acknowledge it, name it, maybe label thinking, name it. And then return to the breath gently, but persistently disengaging from the mind, re-engaging with the body breathing. And you find that you, that it feels like you're observing the breath from your mind, from the watchtower of consciousness in your head. 
See what it's like to bring the attention into the body rather than observing. But feel, descend, bring the mindfulness into the whole body, arms and legs, body sitting, belly rising and falling, air entering and exiting the nostrils. The more we really connect and sustain awareness in the body with the breath, the more we begin to understand impermanence. The constantly changing nature of sensation, not as an idea, but as a understanding and insight. The more we understand impermanence, the easier it is to let go. To no longer resist or cling, but rather accepting the impermanent unfolding of phenomena in the heart, mind, body,
Remember to soften when the jaw becomes clenched or the belly becomes tight. It's because we're resisting something. Clinging to something, craving something. Sometimes just softening the belly, releasing the jaw, helps the mind relax, let go. It's okay to keep the practice simple, just the breath, the body, impermanence. But the Buddha's instructions invite us to expand, having stabilized the attention somewhat with the breath and body, to open to include the other sense doors, to include emotion and thought, sound and sight, smell and taste. Your whole being in kind awareness, present time, non-judgmental, investigative kind awareness. There's no such thing as a distraction at this level of meditation, whatever's happening right now. The sounds that you're hearing, the thoughts that you're thinking, the emotions, all included.
the impermanent nature of thoughts, of feelings, revealed as we pay attention to how thoughts proliferate through the mind, sounds arise and pass, sensations sustain, increase, decrease, dissolve. So we pay attention to what's happening moment to moment on every level of our being, physical, emotional, mental. We can start to identify not just what's happening, the mind is planning or remembering, the body is feeling these sensations. There's joy or sorrow in the heart or tranquility, equanimity in the mind. What's happening and how does it feel? What's the feeling tone in your mind? Is it a pleasant mind state or unpleasant? What about the emotions that are present? Pleasant or unpleasant? perhaps neutral. Scanning the attention through the body, what feels pleasant, enjoyable, agreeable. What feels unpleasant? hard to bear, difficult, painful. Without judging it, just bringing this discernment, awareness. This feels painful, this feels pleasant. and inclining the heart towards kindness and compassion for the discomfort that's present, any difficult thoughts or feelings or sensations, soften into them, meet them with as much mercy and compassion as you can in this moment.
for the last couple of minutes, let go of any effort to create anything or, or even to respond in any certain way. Just relax as much as you can into the present. Right now it's like this. Accepting ourselves, our minds, our wounds, our process of healing, awakening, just where we're at in this moment. When you're ready, allowing your eyes to be open. Take a moment to stretch if you'd like. Before I jump into uh, tonight's topic, are there any questions about the meditation instructions as you become mindful of your breath and body, heart and mind, as you uh, investigate the impermanent nature of things? Does it make sense? Is, is this is it clear what we're doing? And is there any questions about how to work with your experience? You could uh, put it in the chat if there's a question or you could uh, raise your hand um, on the screen. There's the little blue hand that goes up. Um, if you had a question, I'd be happy to address it. No questions? Okay, I'll keep going. I see a question. Amanda, jump in, unmute yourself. 
Thank you. I sometimes catch myself um, manipulating my breath, particularly at the beginning as I'm like settling in. Once I am settled, I can let go of the manipulation. But at the beginning, um, you know, very much like a yogic breath, like a deep breathing and, you know, constricting the throat, um, that kind of thing. Is that like acceptable, unacceptable? I'm just curious. Um, of course it's acceptable. Does it, do you feel like it helps you some to do it that way? Yeah. I just wondered if it was like, um, uh, if I was exerting too much effort, like I'm supposed to not be doing anything. And it's like, I'm, I'm I feel like I'm still doing something and I'm not supposed to be, it, it feels a little bit wrong, but, but it certainly is helpful for settling in. Yeah. Um, but eventually it brings you to a place where you can uh, settle in a bit more and let go of the efforting some and, and shift more into that receiving rather than, than doing. Right. It's, it's totally fine. And of course, if you do a lot of yoga or, you know, if you've meditated in different traditions, there's a lot of instruction that we've been given of kind of controlling, manipulating, taking deep breaths. There's definitely some, you know, the ujjayi breathing, all of those different techniques, uh, breath work techniques, and there's some benefits to it. You know, we, I don't want to totally dismiss all of those things. There's, uh, you know, physiological uh, benefits from taking them deep breaths of breathing out slowly. All of those things are uh, useful and can help settle us in. Buddhist mindfulness breath uh, awareness as you're aware and where the question's coming from, usually it comes from a place of uh, just receive the breath's natural rhythm, you know, right. relax and allow the body to breathe for itself. And there's a few reasons, I believe. I think the most important reason is that part of what we're trying to do is develop a uh, presence, a present time awareness that isn't dependent on breathing a certain way that isn't dependent on any circumstances, but is something that we can bring throughout our normal activities of our normal life off of the meditation cushion and into walking down the street or being at the office or job or wherever we are um, and not having to be doing some sort of strange, uh, you know, constricted throat breathing or something where people are going to be looking at you like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, and so actually it's one of the things I like about Buddhist mindfulness where it's ordinary. It's, you know, it's completely um, just part of the normal way that the body is. Now we don't want to turn relaxing into something that has to be like, I have to be relaxed in order to be mindful. <laughs> Um, cause really we can bring this present time awareness, whether we're controlling the breath and doing some sort of, uh, yogic, uh, breath work, or we're just chilling and, and receiving the body's natural rhythm. So it don't, it does, it's not a problem. It doesn't have to be a problem. It's totally fine to do that. And you can continue to play with your practice and see, uh, maybe you will come to a place where it's easier to let go of that 
uh, efforting in the beginning and just relax into the body's natural rhythm more quickly. But until then, it's fine. Okay, thank you. Welcome. Um, comment about needing, he said, boy, uh, Richard says, boy, did I need to relax my jaw? I was basically grinding my teeth and didn't even notice until you pointed it out. I relaxed it and dropped deep into the meditation. Thank you, sir. And that's um, physiologically, you know, somatically, our body gives us so much information. It's part of the first foundation. We turn inward and we say like, what's going on in here? How, how's the body feeling right now? Is there tension in my stomach? Which is often a sign of some sort of craving, some sort of resistance. Or is my, how's my jaw? Um, you know, often we're, you know, kind of resisting something or suppressing something or, and so the invitation to uh, release that and to just relax into the upright posture is, uh, uh, and, and as Richard's pointing out, is that sometimes when we relax the jaw, soften the belly, the shoulders, wherever we hold that, physical clinging, it can help us just settle and sink right into the practice. Okay, well, I'll jump into uh, the topic. What I'm going to do for the next, uh, I don't know, we'll see how long it, it, it lasts, but I would think maybe the first two or three months, um, I, I probably at least three months, uh, I'm going to take uh, my book, Heart of the Revolution, as the topic for Monday nights. And I'm going to go through this book on Monday nights. Uh, and this book is about loving kindness and compassion, forgiveness, generosity, equanimity, um, the, the, what we call the Brahma Viharas, the uh, heart practices of uh, Buddhism. And so week by week, I'm going to take the different chapters and I'm going to give Dharma talks based on, on kind of the structure of this book and, and focus in on uh, this revolutionary practice of learning to love ourselves and each other, learning to forgive and uh, to have more of a sense of, of joy and, and uh, not only joy in our own lives, but uh, what we call uh, appreciative joy of, of developing this attitude of uh, taking pleasure in the happiness and success of others and enjoying and focusing on the beauty and, and all the goodness in the world, as well as compassion and focusing on developing more uh, mercy and friendliness, forgiveness and compassion for all of the pain and, and ignorance and confusion in the world. Um, so the book is The Heart of the Revolution. We'll, I'll post, uh, I invite people to read the book uh, these next couple of months as this kind of like Monday night, kind of turn it into sort of a study practice course. You can follow along and we'll um, post a link in the um, chat uh, if you wanna purchase a copy. If you don't have it, I'm happy to, to sell you one to facilitate that. Um, and I want to start, although I won't do this every week, I'll, I'll mostly just take the topic and then give you a, a talk and have some discussion about it. 
I want to start by actually sharing, reading, and reflecting on some of the introduction. Um, I wrote this book a little over 10 years ago, I guess. I think it came out in 2011, uh, which means I wrote it in 2009, 2010. Is it 11? Let me look. Yeah, 2000, yeah, it came out in 2011, so 10 years ago, which means I wrote it 11, 12, you know, you write, you write the book about a year before it comes out. <laughs> it takes a while to get it published. And I'm going to read this intro to you, and uh, my sense is that it's, the Dharma is timeless. It's always appropriate, no matter what's happening in the world. Um, but with what's happening in the world right now, the need for compassion, the need for forgiveness, the need for more loving kindness is so uh, obvious. It's so, uh, it feels urgent. Now, I hate to, to I kind of hate to say that because it always feels urgent and it always has been and it always will be um, but, but right now, especially with all of us, uh, you know, stuck at home more and, and the financial stresses and the uh, emotional uh, difficulties that people are going through with the pandemic, with the politics, with, with reality, with the world, um, seems like a really good way to start this calendar year by focusing on uncovering, developing, uh, recommitting to kindness. So I invite you all to join me in, in that. It starts like this. Welcome to the revolution. The Buddha was a revolutionary, a radical advocate for personal and social transformation. He rejected the religious norms of his time and renounced all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. He dedicated his life to going against the stream, to the subversive path of an outlaw transient. He wasn't afraid to speak out against the ignorance in this world's political, social, and religious structures, but he did so from a place of love and kindness, from an enlightened compassion that extended to all living beings. The Buddha's teachings are not a philosophy or a religion. They are a call to action, an invitation to revolution. I invite you to think of the Buddha, right? I have the Buddha statue out tonight. Um, I don't always, sometimes it's up on a, I usually keep him up on the shelf, <laughs> but he's down here from uh, the New Year's Eve intention setting ceremony we did last week. And the Buddha as an outlaw transient, a homeless political activist, socially, engaged, very critical of religion, very critical of 
societal norms of oppression and ignorance. Uh, I think that often we have this picture of the Buddha as this um, statue <laughs> who just sits there and uh, is just always chill. But uh, the reality is if, if you actually get into the story of the Buddha and his life and his teachings is that he was uh, kind of regularly arguing with people, <laughs> sort of regularly trying to educate people and, and pull people out of their ignorance. And, um, uh, and from a place of love, from a place of kindness, from a place of, of, uh, of wisdom, uh, pointing out that people were basing their lives on uh, many ignorant views. And those ignorant views were causing suffering, or, you know, caused suffering to us. So I've always, you know, seen the Buddha as this, um, you know, once I started to actually read about who the guy was and what he had to say of how fucking radical it is and how uh, revolutionary uh, the teachings are and that it's really this invitation to rebel against the norm because the norm in our world is ignorance and self-centered fear and clinging and stress and suffering and uh, to develop compassion to develop wisdom to develop love and kindness for all living beings is a uh, incredibly rebellious thing to do. It goes on to say, I, I say, I have always looked up to those who thought and lived outside of the norms. Growing up, I had a sense that there was something very wrong with this world. Punk rock pointed out to me that many of the norms and laws of this land were constructs of a puritanical and corrupt religious nation. Until I found the practices and teachings of the Buddha, I was stuck in the conundrum of seeing some of the problems, but having no solution. I have had a lifelong fascination with outlaw culture. When I was a kid, bikers, Black Panthers, lowriders, gangsters, and punks were my heroes. Outlaw bikers wear a patch on their jackets that has a 1% printed within a diamond shape. The emblem signifies that they, the one percenters, stand apart from the law-abiding citizens. The tradition originated in the 1950s as a result from the famous 1947 biker riot in Hollister, California, which was later dramatized in the movie, The Wild One with Marlon Brando. Reporting on the riot, a journalist trying to defend the masses of motorcycle enthusiasts wrote a story about how 99% of the people in this world who ride motorcycles are law-abiding citizens. He said that it is only the remaining 1% who give the rest a bad name, living outside of the law. And of course, the outlaw bikers took this as a compliment and ran with it. They rebelled against the mindless, mainstream conventionality of the 50s and were proud of it. The Buddha is reported to have said that he thought only a handful of people in each generation 
the spiritual one percenters would be willing to do the hard work of training the heart and mind through meditation, ethical behavior, and unconditional love for all sentient beings. His message was radical, like the outlaw bikers of the 50s. He bucked the conventions and norms of his day. His practice was hard, but the insights and happiness it promised were new and potentially world-shattering. Now I'll pause for a moment and admit that it's kind of a stretch to compare uh, unethical, often violent, heavily intoxicated outlaw bikers <laughs> and that sort of materialist uh, rebellion to the spiritual rebellion of the Buddha, who was a nonviolent, uh, you know, uh, totally sober uh, man of integrity, human, you know, human of, of kindness and integrity. So of course, I, I'm sort of comparing, uh, you know, apples and oranges, but you get the point of this, uh, you know, maybe it's very personal to me. One of the reasons, one of the things that hooked me into Buddhism was that I just have always known there's something, maybe it's something my parents modeled for me, something that I saw that, uh, you know, my parents coming from that hippie rebellion of their generation of just that, like the mainstream uh, is asleep, that, that our world is uh, fueled by greed and hatred and delusion, and that we have to rebel against it. We have to do something very different than the norm. And of course, the punk rock movement uh, that I grew up in in the 80s, um, you know, really, you know, was a manifestation of that rebelliousness of that kind of, we're going to go against and as I say in that section there, until I found the Dharma uh, and, and so many of us, and I think it's happening a lot now in the political activist circles, where it's like, it's so easy to point out the problem and to know uh, that there's something very wrong, all of this racism, all of this sexism, all of this uh, oppression that's happening in the world but without having much solution, without actually having the tools to develop compassion for the underlying causes and conditions um, and forgiveness for both the oppressors and the uh, oppressed. And, you know, being able to really have a, a wise and loving relationship and, and response to, to what's happening in this world. With over 7 billion people in this world, only a handful in each generation, as the Buddha said, could very easily mean somewhere around 1% or over 70 million. Do you suppose there are 70 million people in this world who are walking a spiritual path with heart? I don't know. But what I do know is that it is rare for Buddhists Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, agnostics, scientists, or whatever, to be open-hearted, to be free from ill will, to be free from resentment and ignorance. 
It makes sense that the path of love and compassion, of kindness and appreciation is tread only by 1% of the world who have the good fortune to find the willingness to reject the false teachings of religion and have turned inward to find the truth for themselves. When I first heard the radical Buddhist teachings on loving kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, I was incredibly skeptical. Coming from a background of drugs and violence, I saw those heart qualities as undesirable and perhaps even unsafe. The circles I ran in, compassion was seen as equivalent to weakness and would make you vulnerable to harm and to abuse. I learned early on that this world was full of pain and seemed to lack much kindness. In reaction to the pain of my life, I began to close my heart and harden myself against all forms of love. So it was with great hesitance that I experimented with the Buddhist practice of kindness and compassion. In the beginning, I don't think forgiveness was even in my vocabulary. The only reason I opened myself to these meditation practices, often called heart practices, at all was because I had tremendous faith in the practice of mindfulness, paying attention to the present moment. I had faith in the Buddha and in my teachers who assured me that it was safe to love again. I don't know uh, how many people can relate to that. I know we all have different conditioning that we come to the Dharma with. Um, but for me, it didn't feel like Kindness and compassion were uh, going to be safe. It didn't, I actually, I really didn't like, I, I loved the mindfulness and like the Four Noble Truths and the mindfulness. I got right from the beginning, I was like, okay, I get so much relief from ignoring my mind and paying attention to my breath. That shit works because my mind is trying to kill me. And if I could just disengage and come back to the body, come back to the breath, I get some relief from that. The first noble truth, acknowledging the suffering in the world, I was like, all right, the guy's not lying. He's starting, you know, like, clearly there's a bunch of suffering in my life. There's a bunch of suffering in this world, the cause of suffering, the craving. So I had this relationship with, with Buddhism that... Um, made sense. But then I had these teachers saying, do forgiveness, do loving kindness, do. And I was like, oh, that doesn't, I don't like that. Mindfulness makes sense in the way that I was doing it. But being kind feels vulnerable, feels weak, feels um, uh, uh, unsafe, feels like I'll be uh, victimized or something if I don't keep up my armoring. As I looked into the heart practices, I heard things like, love is your true nature. The heart has a natural tendency towards compassion. Now, I had already been meditating for some time, examining my inner world through mindfulness, and I didn't see any of the love and compassion of which these teachers spoke. When I looked into my heart and mind, I saw only fear, anger, 
hatred, judgment, and more fear, and a lot of lustful cravings. When I sat quietly paying attention to my breath, my attention was repeatedly drawn into fantasies of vengeful destruction or pornographic sex. One moment I was bashing my stepfather's head in with a Louisville slugger. The next I was in a threesome with Madonna and Tracy Lords. I was pretty sure that such sludge was all there was in there. Mindfulness helped me deal with my inner confusion. It allowed me to ignore my mind at times and not take it so personally at others. But it didn't seem to be magically creating a loving heart out of my inner critic, terrorist, pervert, tough guy. In the early days of my meditation practice, I was interested only in mindfulness. I had been introduced to various breath awareness meditations, and as a result, I experienced the direct benefits of concentration and mindfulness. I immediately found temporary relief from fear of the future and shame about the past. Learning to train my mind to pay close attention to the present moment was difficult, but fruitful. I experienced immediate, if only momentary, relief from the suffering I continuously created with my mind's tendency to be lost in the future and past. Before I began my meditation practice, whenever my mind started to worry about what would happen in the future, I would get completely sucked into the fears and often become convinced that the worst case scenario would play out. Mindfulness gave me the tools to let go of those thoughts and to bring my attention into the body's experience of the breath. Mindfulness made sense to me, and it wasn't difficult to gain a verified faith in that aspect of Buddhism. For me, mindfulness proved to be the doorway to the rest of the Buddha's dharma, or teachings. I came to believe that it was going to be possible to train my mind, but I still had no hope for my heart. When I did practice loving kindness meditations, my mind was so critical and resistant, resistant that my efforts seemed to make my mind louder and my heart harder rather than softer. But I continued to practice loving kindness meditations anyway. Again, the fact that I had seen that mindfulness worked gave me some confidence to try the rest of the Buddha's teachings. Besides, what did I have to lose? I was already unhappy. My heart was already hard. Gradually, I began to see that underneath my fears and lusts was a genuine desire to be free from suffering. Mindfulness had given me the first taste of that freedom, and I wanted more. Of course I wanted more. I'm an addict. I always want more. <laughs> you give me, I really feel like, one of the blessings of having an addictive uh, tendency and, and uh, is that if you can turn it towards the Dharma and, and you know, with some level of balance and, and, and appropriate guidance, then you'll actually sit every day. You'll actually go to lots of retreats. You'll actually study because of that kind of compulsive tendency that so many of us have of like, no, I want this shit. So I'm going to, I'm all in, <laughs> I'm committed. And even, even the shit that doesn't feel good, even this weird loving kindness shit, I'm going to do it every day anyways. 
So without much hope, I eventually committed to including kindness, compassion, and forgiveness meditations to my daily practice. It was a slow and difficult process to learn to love myself and others. Eventually, though, I began to understand what the Buddha and my teachers had been talking about. I began to get glimpses of genuine kindness and compassion and to experience moments of forgiveness. But I have to admit, it took years. Over my years of meditation practice, which has included regular periods of silent intensive retreats, ranging from five days to three months in length, I have gradually come to experience the compassion, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, and generosity that the Buddha promised would be found. My heart has softened. My mind has quieted down. These days, I rarely want to bash anyone's head in. When I think of my stepfather, I do so with compassion for how much suffering he must have been in to have been such a jerk back then. My mind focuses easily on the task at hand, and I often feel warmth and kindness towards all beings. I now know that compassion is a natural quality of my heart, one that was lying dormant, waiting to be uncovered. The Buddhist path is a process of discovery, recovery, and a gradual un uncovering of a loving heart. I see the process of awakening and healing as being like the activity of an archeological dig. In the early days, I worked just on the surface. Mindfulness was a tremendous relief and it acted like a metal detector that allowed me to know there were precious treasures beneath the ground. Mindfulness was also the shovel that began the excavation. But as I started to dig, I first found all the layers of sediment that were covering the heart. The heart practices allowed for a further refining of the soil. I was beginning to sift through the rubble, hoping to immediately find treasure. The unsettled feeling I got during my early days of compassion and kindness exercise came about because I was uncovering all of the skeletons that had been buried over the years of trying to avoid the pain of my childhood and adolescence. I had become quite skilled in my early years at covering the insecurity and reactivity. But each meditative effort of forgiveness, kindness, or compassion removed another shovelful of dirt, each one getting me closer to the forgotten truth of my heart. I really like this perspective that it doesn't even feel like a perspective. It feels like the truth that what we're doing in the Dharma is uh, regaining access to something that's always been here. And as I said, I, I came with a lot of skepticism and my surface experience of my mind and mindfulness was all I saw were the afflictive emotions and the difficult mind states. Uh, and it took quite some time for me to start to really uh, access and uncover and recover a sense of friendliness and kindness and compassion. And um, I don't know, it's interesting. I really like this perspective of uncovering uh, something that's innately within each one of us, that all living beings have this in us. 
There is the other perspective, maybe the neuroscience perspective that says, uh, you know, we have these neuropathways that are fueled by this ancient survival uh, instinct that is greed, that is aversive and hatred and, and judgment and fear-based, uh, and that the meditation is creating new neuropathways. That each time we bring the mindfulness here, each time we say, I forgive you, or uh, may I be happy, may I be at ease, all of those positive statements that we implant in the mind, that we're training the mind, uh, we're creating, you know, because we have neuroplasticity, because we can create these uh, internal mind states of, of wisdom and compassion through training. So I'm not sure. And you can decide for yourself what it feels like. Does it feel like uncovering or does it feel like, uh, you know, training the mind or um, cultivating? Uh, but I like this perspective of uncovering. At times, the heart practices serve as an even finer instruments of archaeology. That is, as brushes used to gently sweep away the remaining dust covering the treasures of the heart. Meditations are versatile in that way. Sometimes you need a shovel to do the heavy lifting, and other times you need something gentler, very subtle and refined, just to dust off the heart, as it were. But as we know, sometimes uncovering an ancient city can take a lifetime. There's no timetable that we can count on. There's no guarantee that we'll, we will reach the forgotten treasure of compassion anytime soon. What is promised is that it is there waiting. And at times we can hear it calling to us, begging to be uncovered. The path of meditative training, if followed correctly and with persistence, will always lead to the recovery of our lost love and compassion, one scoop at a time. I can say all of this with confidence because I have experienced it directly as you will. These days, my life is filled with a general sense of trust and friendliness. My relationship with my parents, my friends, my wife, my daughter are sourced from appreciation, love, compassion, and forgiveness. But perhaps more important is the attitude of loving kindness that permeates my attitude towards strangers. I spent my early life at war with the world. The heart practices of the Buddha taught me to surrender, but to not give up the commitment to creating a positive change. What was once a rebellion fueled by hatred is now a revolution fueled by compassion. I want to focus on this line for a moment, just the Buddha's, the heart practices taught me to surrender, to surrender, to let go, to let down the armoring, to, to, to stop the war with the world, but not to give up the commitment to creating a positive change in the world. I feel like so often people get into this either or, either I have to be an angry activist, <laughs> fucking pissed off and, you know, for the revolution, or I have to be this like loving, accepting person that's not active, that's not engaged, that just says like, hey, not my problem, I'm just, you know, love and light. And that we can absolutely find 
this balance between not being at war with the world, accepting the world, this foundation of acceptance of non-contentiousness, non-reactivity to the reality of the world that we live in with full commitment out of compassion, out of love to create a positive change, to point out the ignorance, not out of hatred, but out of compassion, to stand up for justice, not out of hatred, but out of love. And that we can actually do this and that so many people are, are finding their way towards this. Now, I feel that it's only fair to also offer a warning. The path to uncovering our heart's positive qualities is a radical one, fraught with the demons of the heart-mind that in Buddhism we call Mara. Mara is the aspect of heart-mind that creates roadblocks, gives excuses, procrastinates, and urges us to avoid all of the unpleasant mind states that accompany the healing of awakening. Mara is the inner experience of all forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. Mara, often personified as an opponent, will attack with vengeance at times. For by committing to the heart's liberation, we are committing to facing Mara directly. The Buddha spoke of his battle with Mara and noted that victory over Mara was won with the weapons of love, compassion, equanimity, and appreciation. After the Buddha's initial victory, Mara did not give up, however. Mara continued to live with the Buddha throughout his whole life. The Buddha was constantly vigilant, always meeting Mara with a loving awareness, always disarming him with the heart's wisest responses. Again, I want to highlight this um, reality that we're in, that no matter how much we wake up, no matter how much compassion we develop, no matter how much wisdom we develop, we uncover, we, we embody, we're still going to live with a human mind that judges. We're still going to live with a human mind that criticizes not only others, but ourselves. And this is what the Buddha referred to as Mara. And he said, you know, I, I see you, Mara. I meet that aspect of my mind with acceptance, with compassion, with forgiveness. But the fully enlightened Buddha had to continue living with that mind his whole life. And I think that sometimes we come to practice and we think, well, if I meditate enough, if I practice enough renunciation, if I'm a good Buddhist, if I'm wise enough, then my mind will shut the fuck up. <laughs> It'll, you know, my mind will stop judging, will stop criticizing, will stop comparing me to other people or uh, whatever it does. I think that the reality is those afflictive inner uh, attacks decrease and decrease and decrease but they never completely end. And I take this from my own experience, although I'm certainly no enlightened Buddha, I take this from the Buddha's teaching where he says, you know, Mara is a lifelong companion. 
Mara is the personification of greed and hatred and delusion and uh, craving and, and aversion. And he says, just what we have to learn to live with, our awakening, our, the potential of our awakening is that we learn to respond with kindness to those mind states. We don't get rid of them. We learn to not take them so personal. We see them. We start to respond with, I see you, Mara. It's not that it just goes away. It's, uh, it's not a lobotomy. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't scramble that part of our mind. It just changes our perspective on it. There is no one who is unable to love, forgive, or be compassionate. Ability is our birthright. All that is required is the desire and willingness to take on those challenges. Most people would confess the desire to be free from the hatred, anger, and fear that they live with. There are some, though, who have been so badly injured and confused that they have lost all hope or have created a belief in hatred as noble and necessary quality. It seems as if this is the case in many of the Western religions. When you worship a God who is judgmental, wrathful, and vengeful, it makes sense that those same qualities would become acceptable and perhaps even desirable in you. But before I go off on my atheist Buddhist rant, let me say that although it seems that true love and the willingness to uncover the heart qualities of forgiveness, mercy, and compassion are rare, Buddhists are not the only ones who are using the practices. As a matter of fact, I think that very few Buddhists are actually applying the teachings of the Buddha to their heart-mind. The Buddha spoke of the middle path, a path that leads against the stream between the two dead ends. The first dead end is that of worldliness or of seeking happiness from material or sensual experiences. The second dead end is that of religion or seeking happiness from devotion and belief in external salvation. I believe that most Buddhists have fallen into the dead end of religion. Be careful that you do not make the same mistake. These two dead ends, the middle path, Buddhism as practical, applicable humanist psychology, non-theistic, empowering techniques to train our own heart and mind that don't ask for blind faith, that don't ask for uh, ritual, um, but for, you know, encourage us to train our mind and to practice renunciation and to uh, live a life of integrity. I hope that this view does not discourage you, but rather that it inspires you to make sure that you're part of the rare and precious revolutionaries of heart, the compassionate one percenters, acknowledging that only a handful in each generation will do what needs to be done does not have to be bad news. Actually, it's great news. It's real and realistic. That anyone can find the willingness and courage to follow this path is a great victory for humanity. And remember, 1% is millions and millions of people. I welcome you to the revolution as a comrade in heart. If you follow this path, you will free yourself from all the unnecessary suffering of life 
and you will inspire others to do the same. The practices in this book are not a quick fix. They are a map to a hidden treasure. You will have to do all of the digging yourself, all of the work. Although the work is best done with the support of teachers and a community of fellow archeologists, ultimately you'll have to do all of the heavy lifting or letting go as it may be. Your life will be transformed as mine has been. And together we will be among the one, one percenters who create a positive change in this world. So that was the full introduction. The book is Heart of the Revolution. We will spend the next, I, I think, at least three months or so going through the teachings, practicing uh, the meditations. Uh, we'll spend some weeks on forgiveness, some weeks on loving kindness, on appreciation, on equanimity. We'll talk about the importance of service and generosity and... Um, and I'll start next week by the kind of uh, basic view before we get into the heart practices of um, kind of what's actually going on here in this human body with these six sense doors and these um, five uh, ways of perceiving consciousness and perception and feeling tone and uh, a physical body and memory. So next week we'll get into unpacking that and then we'll go on to the heart practice teachings and practices. We do have a few minutes if there are questions about anything that I shared from the introduction to the book. You can put it in the chat or you can raise your hand. Rick asks, Noah, if most, even perhaps all, acts are forgivable, do we risk certain important moral standards going by the waysides? Can the withholding of forgiveness ever be seen as a compassionate act? I don't think we want to, um, and we'll get into this in the book, I do get into it, I don't think we want to conflate forgiveness with um, with uh, complacency or with um, not holding somebody accountable for their actions. Um, so, I mean, the, the short answer from my perspective, Rick, is that uh, I don't think the answer is yes. I think the answer is no. I think that um, it's never useful to withhold forgiveness. Um, that uh, withholding forgiveness in us is um, it's holding on to suffering. Uh, a lack of forgiveness is a lack of freedom. And so uh, I, I feel like it's always 100% of the time the appropriate thing to do to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have good boundaries. That doesn't mean that um, people don't have consequences for their actions. Um, perhaps, you know, like, uh, although my own perspective is, is that our prisons are filled with uh, people who shouldn't be in prison, probably the majority of them. Um, but there are some people who should be in prison, <laughs> right? There are some people who need to actually be separated from 
the society, you know, like with full forgiveness, with full love, with full compassion, um, you know, psychopaths, you know, people who are going to continue to cause harm, uh, there needs to be consequences. And that's not out of a lack of forgiveness. That's just out of like a wise uh, boundary and, a, and a, a wise response. But I do believe that we can do that with full, fully forgiving the confusion that creates the harm. I hope that makes sense. Any other thoughts, questions, comments about this or anything else that's on your mind about the Dharma, your practice? Time for one or two more questions. Okay, well, we can leave it there for tonight. Um, Wait, there's one, one just came through. It says, uh, you, Noah, you mentioned certain religious tendencies, devotion being a dead end. I've been practicing bhakti yoga thoughts. Um, I mean, I don't know what, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, it depends on our relationship to something like bhakti. A lot of the Tibetan Buddhist practices are kind of bhakti devotional sort of practices with deities and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know that much about Hindu bhakti um, yoga practice. Uh, my sense, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that that might mean that you have a mantra and you're chanting some of the holy names or... Um, and practically, you know, those kind of mantra practices are very beneficial and they can get the mind very concentrated. From a Buddhist perspective, we need to use that concentration and then uh, engage mindfully as we did in the meditation tonight, that level of concentration and then open to this uh, awareness and in this investigation that uh, the mantra itself won't lead to the full liberation from a Buddhist perspective uh, without mindfulness. So, you know, it's a tricky question, Joel, that you'll have to kind of find your own way with. Certainly, you know, bhakti, uh, you know, what, what, you know, bhakti yoga was the kind of popular practice in the time of the Buddha. And he didn't think that it uh, was going to lead people to liberation. That's why he created this middle path. And he said, you know, this sort of just chanting or offering to the deities um, he says, you know, actually, uh, the causes of suffering are in here, and you have to go in there and face them yourselves, face Mara yourself, uh, develop compassion, develop uh, kindness from the inside, and that the kind of gods and the devotional practices aren't going to do that for you was a, a core teaching of the Buddha. David asks if the heart practices are a finer brush than mindfulness, is there yet an even finer tool? I don't know um, what the answer to that is. I, I keep my 
Buddhism pretty simple. Um, and I, you know, it's basically mindfulness practice and heart practice. And these are the kind of two, two sides. And, you know, really, uh, a lot of the times my, the, the, these two practices um, come together that I'm practicing mindfulness. And then if a resentment arises, I might turn towards some forgiveness or if some pain is present, I might incline the heart towards compassion, um, that they're not actually separate practices as much as just a present intention to meet whatever is happening in this moment with a wise response. What's the response that will end suffering? Um, so I don't know if there is any, any finer tool and, and I'll get into it later in the book, but in some ways, you'll notice in the Eightfold Path that the Buddha doesn't teach the heart practices. He doesn't include it in the original formula, uh, formulation of the path to end suffering. Um, what he teaches is mindfulness. And uh, in the, the Buddha's battle with Mara and his, his response of compassion and of, of kindness and um, that came from mindfulness. And so some would argue that actually mindfulness is the shovel and it's the brush and it's the only tool that you need. <laughs> and that if you practice mindfulness deeply, uh, all of the, the heart qualities will be revealed. There's a monk that I like that I was having a conversation with a few years ago and he said, you know, just doing mindfulness, um, uh, it was, he said in his experience of doing mindfulness is as though there was a curtain that was blocking his heart. And he says, mindfulness was the tool that drew the curtain back and let his heart of love and of kindness and of compassion shine forth. He said, I didn't do any of the loving kindness practices or the compassion practices. I just did insight, mindfulness, and the outcome was a loving kindness heart. So um, for what it's worth. Last question from Pavil. When practicing forgiveness, is it most advisable to practice forgiving immediately after breaking a promise to myself, the Dharma relationship, or wait to do it during, wait to do it during meditation? appreciate the continuous minders to get free and practice kindness to ourselves and to all beings. Thank you. Um, I think we should practice forgiveness immediately. And then later when we're meditating and then tomorrow when we're meditating and then every day for like the next 10 years, <laughs> I definitely think that forgiveness needs to be an ongoing practice and that uh, it's not something that it's not a decision that we can make. It's a pathway in the mind that we're creating. It's a heart quality that we're uncovering. And for almost all of us, it's a long-term okay, uh, uh, ongoing way that we learn to relate to the mind's tendency to cling. Forgiveness is letting go of the pain and the resentment towards what has happened. We'll leave it there tonight. Um, order Heart of the Revolution, read the book, follow along with us for the next 
couple, three months. Um, there's a link in the chat of how to do that. Classes done by donation. There's also a link in the chat of how to donate, come to the website. Suggest a $15 donation for drop-in class. Um, I know you're just on Zoom and you're at home and uh, maybe people don't have a lot of money. The um, donations have, haven't been very, um, uh, what's the word? Not very many people have been donating on Zoom. Please do if you can. I'm still paying rent on the meditation center. Uh, we have, you know, against the stream, we're a nonprofit. We have a lot, kind of a lot of overhead. Uh, if the Sangha can help support that so that when the pandemic uh, is over, or at least we're able to meet again, um, we still have a meditation center to practice in. So please uh, help us uh, continue to exist. Uh, several meditation centers, I know inside LA, I just heard two meditation centers here in Los Angeles closed both of their meditation centers. It's, it's quite hard for communities to continue to uh, exist. And so I hope that we uh, are able to, um, and we will be able to with your generosity, with your generosity, with your support, with your participation in uh, supporting the Sangha to have a, a home to come back to eventually. <laughs> so thank you for your generosity and uh, see you next week. Many goodness that develops from our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma be offered outward in all directions shared with all living beings everywhere. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.